It's Yonder. mention the French horns? French horns come in. Gives it sort of an uplifting <laughs> feel. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Jeff Robbins, and this is the Yonder Podcast. This week, we've got episode number eight. Uh, about every two weeks, I interview someone thinking about remote work, distributed companies, virtual teams, that sort of stuff. And uh, we put out a podcast. This week, I'm talking to Dan Mall. Um, Dan's a great guy. What an interesting guy. Um, he has a whole bunch of different things that he's done and is doing. Um, let's see. Let me see if I could start. First of all, Dan runs uh, an agency called Super Friendly, which you can find at superfriend.ly. Um He's putting together a, a site called Superbooked, where uh, freelancing type people can kind of find one another and find gigs and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we also talked to him about apprenticeships um, and uh, internships and that kind of stuff, which is uh, something that I think is a little bit more difficult for distributed companies, remote teams than it is for co-located brick and mortar companies. Um, and Dan has done some interesting thinking about that. Dan is also the author of a book called, um, pricing design, which you can find from a book apart. And, uh, I recommend it if you're thinking about pricing your design projects, uh, if you've got design projects and want to figure out how to price them, uh, which is a thing that my company Lullabot has done. So it's feels important to me, but, uh, your mileage may vary. Um, but, uh, Dan's a good big thinker. Um, yeah. I'm just kind of getting through this week, trying to get a new podcast out and keep moving forward. Uh, if you enjoy the Yonder podcast, please visit yonder.io and, uh, you can subscribe there on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, all the services. We've also got a mailing list. I highly recommend you get on the mailing list and then we'll just uh, send you an email and let you know when there's new podcasts that come out or uh, articles that go up on the site, anything that, that happens of interest. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's get to our interview with Dan Mall. Dan Mall. Welcome to the Yonder Podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. It's so great to have you here. Um, let's see. Let's start these like we start these. Tell us where <laughs> you're talking to us from. Sure. So I'm uh, I'm from Philly. Uh, in in Philly, uh, been in Philly most of my life. So did a couple of years in Brooklyn, but definitely had to come back home to Philly. So Philly representing. <laughs> right on. And <laughs> and so do you have an office in your home or do you uh work out of a an office that you go to? 
Yeah, so it's sort of in between there. So when when we moved back to Philly, we bought this old church and uh, and renovated it. So my family and I live upstairs in oh, the neat. old church, and uh, and my studio is downstairs. So so technically, it's working from home, but it's like a very separate uh, office space. Oh, that's awesome! That's really neat. Uh, yeah, so it's nice because I have like an eight second commute, but it's also not like holing up in a in a closet or in a you know spare bedroom or something right, like that. Right, right, cool. So uh, tell us about you and your and your your background. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so my background is in design. I'm a designer. Uh, I went to school for design. So I went to, to school at Drexel University in Philly. Um, and most of my work and most of my experience has been running design teams and leading design teams and working as a designer developer um, at a bunch of different agencies. So I worked at uh, like web boutique agencies. I worked at advertising agencies. Um, and now I run my own shop that's maybe, I guess, somewhere in between some of that stuff. Um, but most of it is just uh, focusing on front-end design, like the way that I describe it as, as with a lot of people in what we do is like anything that's kind of made for a screen, you know, a, a, a mobile app, a, a kiosk, a touchscreen a website you know those are some of the things that that's super friendly and that I do yeah so your so your company now is is super friendly and people can find that at mm-hmm. superfriend dot ly dot or there's mm. no dot com I'm just no dot com. habitual <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because because we have yonder.io and I'm still adding dot com onto things anyways but uh, <laughs> yes uh, super friendly uh, and and tell us about super friendly like uh, sure. Um, who is super friendly and, uh, what kind of projects have you done and how have those come together? Yeah, sure. So I call, I call this super friendly, a design collaborative. Um, and I'm the only full-time employee there. There's nobody else here, but regularly, you know, at, at any given time, there may be five people working on a su- on as part of super friendly. There might be 30 people working as part of super friendly. Um, so the way that it works is, um, I have a bunch of people that I like working with. And what I try to do is assemble the right teams for the right projects. Uh, it's that, that model, that business model is generally called the Hollywood model. Um, of course, because of branding, I like to call it the super friend model, but if you want to research it more, you could, you know, you can call it the, the Hollywood, you could look up the Hollywood model. And it's basically the way that, that Hollywood studios make films, right? So if you think about a studio in Hollywood, they don't employ the directors or the actors or the producers or anything like that. Those people are independent. Essentially, they're contractors, but they bring those people together. And for a period of time, those people work together as if they were one company. Um, And that could be for six months or three months or a year or a couple of weeks, however long it takes to make that film. And then once they make the film, they kind of all go their separate ways into the night. They may work together again in the future. They also may not. And any of those scenarios are okay. So I think that there's a lot of parallels between how the web industry and the digital industry can get good work done. And so Super Friendly is basically modeled around that. I assemble teams for the right projects. So sometimes I'll need people who are very experienced. Sometimes I'll need people who are maybe not so experienced. Sometimes I'll need um, you know, specialists or generalists. Sometimes I need tenure. Uh, and so I just try to try to build the right teams for the right projects. Man, I love this because um, <clears throat> it's kind of the intersection between a lot of the conversations around the future of work. Uh, because on the, on this podcast, we've been talking a lot about sort of the future of work as it relates to remote work and sort of replicating a conventional company in a virtual environment. Uh, you know, uh, distributed yes. distributed company. However, there's another conversation that's been going on, which is the future of work is freelance. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that, uh, 
you know, in the 1940s, you know, people had one job for their life, uh, or at least that was the idea. Uh, and these days, people bounce around between jobs, and they sort of keep That's bouncing right. and build skills, and uh, you know, and and eventually, it's just like, well, rather than taking a job here, why don't I just freelance? Uh, and there's this, you mm-hmm. know, growing freelance economy, um, and and what you're doing seems to sort of combine those two things in a, in a interesting way. Um, yeah, totally. I, you know, I, like one of the reasons that I realized that is, uh, when I was working at the last agency, I worked at big spaceship, uh, in, in Brooklyn. I remember we, we pitched Crayola and we, we won that project. And one of the reasons that we won work with Crayola was because coincidentally, right, this is not something that we planned out, but coincidentally, the strategist that I had on that project he had, he used to be an elementary school teacher, right? So this is just, just a coincidence. But when Crayola found that out, when they were like, wait, so you're going to be the strategist on the project, but you've taught elementary school for the last 15 years before you became a strategist? That was one of the things that made them go, oh, anybody else that we're talking to, anybody else that you're pitching against, they don't have a person like you on staff. And that sort of opened my eyes to the idea that like there's particular expertise that most times an agency is not going to have on staff, right? They just don't have somebody on the bench waiting to, to be the specialist there. So what, but what if, but I know those people, right? So some of those people are my friends, some of them work at other companies, some of them, you know, they're, they're sort of all over the place. And if I could bring them on just for this project, that could be a competitive advantage, right? I could have, you know, an information architect that has 20 years of higher ed experience working on a higher ed site. And that gives me an edge over the, the other agencies that I'm pitching against. Or I could have, you know, someone who used to be a banker that's now a designer, you know, working on a, on a thing. And so like that, those are things that I, I was like, well, those are advantages that I, I could have in sort of pulling together people that, and I don't have to have those people on payroll, you know, but I could, I could really contact them whenever I need them. And then my job would be to give them enough space on that project to do what they want, to, to be able to pay them well enough to do what they want and to do what they can. Um, and I thought like, well, that's actually, that's possible. So let me try it out and see if it works. And you know, so far so good. I love it. Um, <clears throat> and you've gotten some really, uh, big name people to work on a lot of these projects, I should say. Um, I think I, I originally met you at a, an event apart or, or some conference like that. You're, you're a person who's out on the, on the circuit um, and you tend to <laughs> sort of rally in other kind of big thinkers uh, for these, these projects. And uh, um it, it really, it's, it is, it's like, like, uh, like the Eagles, you know, a super group or, or <laughs> super friends is, is a good name for it too. Uh, yeah, that's uh, right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, uh, how, how do you handle the, I mean, I guess part of the advantage of having, I'm making air quotes here, big names like that, uh, is that these are people who are kind of out there floating around as well. Um, it seems like this setup would not work as well for people, uh, that wanted more, I guess the word I'm looking for is job security, uh, uh, you know, sort of that you know acknowledging that they're that they're that in this economy people are sort of bouncing around from job to job more but there are people who who don't feel comfortable uh moving fully into a into a freelance uh style can can you work with people like that in in this environment how do you how do you handle that from a business setup yeah totally so i think um 
I think it, it does work across a range of different um, setups. So certainly the, the most obvious setup is, all right, I'll just get a bunch of people that are freelancing and pull them together into a super team. And that works. That works, too, you know, certainly. Um, but I think there are a couple of nuances that, that maybe aren't so obvious. So on many projects, I've had moonlighters, you know, people that work at, you know, they have a full time job. So I have, I have a good friend who's um, who's a great art director. I've hired him for a couple of projects. He works at a job where he's not terribly happy, but he needs to pay the bills and he wants wants job security or he doesn't want to freelance and sort of, you know, do the hunting and gathering thing from project to project. He wants a steady paycheck, which I totally respect, but I really want to work with him. So the deal that I have with him is whenever he's on a project, he gives me his nights and weekends. And as long as I'm okay with that, and as long as the project schedule can accommodate that, that's totally fine. And and I, w- I have to trust him uh, to be able to do that stuff. You know, it, you know, he doesn't have 40 hours a week that's available, but maybe he has 15. So I've got to be able to trust that that project can get done in 15 hours of his, his time per week. And if he's and and really it's, it comes down to trust, which is the same thing that happens anywhere else, whether a person is freelancing or moonlighting or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so if as long as I trust the person, as long as they trust me, I think that any kind of setup can work. Um, so so super friendly teams are generally built up of of three types of people. So there's certainly the freelancers that are kind of you know like one one person shops that they're doing their own thing by themselves. But it's also moonlighters and it's also other t- other shops that I team up with. So mm-hmm. uh, right. we've teamed up with other development shops. Or strategy shops or design shops to you know people like businesses that are running and kind of fully formed and those are kind of ripe areas for collaboration because there we don't really need to work to, with each other right we're, we're self-sufficient super friendly could do the project by by itself those other shops could do a project by itself but by collaborating we we're, we're able to say like, well, what can we learn from each other in this? What can we learn about each other's process or how we do things or documentation or deliverables or, you know, or cadence, like any of that stuff are, are things that we can learn from that. So I find that it works with, with just all sorts of different, uh, different setups. And, you know, the other thing that you mentioned is it's not always big name people that are, you know, working, like doing the conference circuit or speaking or just, or really popular or whatever. Um, I find that it that sometimes those and I, I'm I'm guilty of this myself and I try to pay attention to this. Sometimes the people that are speaking and doing doing the great conference things, sometimes great speakers aren't always great workers yeah. and vice versa, right? Sometimes the people that are doing the work aren't great at speaking about it. So I think those are independent skill sets. And sometimes I need somebody who's like a good evangelist and can speak to to work. Sometimes I need somebody who can like do the production stuff and, and get it done. Um, and really, so what I try to look for is is people that are accountable. Um, I will take a person who no one knows about who I know can meet a deadline over somebody who's whatever speaking all around the world and can't you know can't get something done by Friday uh, so I so I find that that's much more valuable to have somebody that, that I can count on on the project and that I can trust yeah absolutely so how how um one of the things that we talk about on the on the podcast a lot is is culture, sort of company culture, mm-hmm. um, and and when you have these ad hoc teams, I mean, given that they may be working together for a year or or more, um, you, you know, how how are you keeping people connected? What what does that look like? Yeah, gotcha. So, admittedly, this is a thing that I'm not good at, and so I try to have people on the project that part of their skill is to do that thing. Mm-hmm. Like I, I've never been good at that. Like I've always been kind of a, a lone wolf and, and um, you know, certainly 
like I'm, I, when I worked on at, at full-time places, when I worked as a W2 employee, I was always the guy where everybody else was going out for, for drinks after work. And I, I just wanted to go home. <laughs> like, so, so admittedly, I am not, I'm not a, a rallier. I'm not a person who kind of brings people together. So I always need help on that. What I try to do is one is like realize that, that I'm not good at that and hire somebody on the project whose role would it would be to do that? Maybe not exclusively, you know, so maybe it's like, you know, I bring an art director on who actually is really good at saying like, all right, let's keep people connected or I bring a, you know, a developer or, you know, so that, I think that, that skill set can come with any position. It's mm-hmm. not just like, oh, well, the leader of the project has to do that or the project manager has to do that. Like, I think that can come from anywhere. I think that's a personality thing where people rally toward personalities, <laughs> not particularly mm-hmm. job titles. So I try to look out for that, knowing that I'm not good at it. How can somebody kind of help me to, to fill in that gap? Um, and then the other thing is, I, I would say, for better or worse, the culture of a super friendly project is not one of like, uh, terrible camaraderie, I guess. It's not like that's not the main thing. I think it's about quality of work. So I think that that acts as a self-selection mechanism where people that are like, I want to do really good work at the top of what I can do and have people around me that can push me to do good work. I think that's attractive to people who want to work on a super friendly team. I think people that are like, look, I just want to hang out with a group of friends and be casual about this stuff. I'm not sure that that works well for super friendly teams. Yeah, I, well, I don't know I if that's a mistake that, or not, but that's sort of, you know, no, that's no, sort of no, where no. I've I, I think that you, there's a culture in, in productivity and in striving for excellence. Uh, um, I think that's a good culture to have and, and can, can be rewarding and, um, bringing people together, you know, um, that kind of stuff. I don't, I, I think culture sometimes, especially these days, people confuse like foosball with culture. Yeah, I think, and I'm guilty of that too, right? Because that's what I thought you were asking was like, how do you get people to play foosball if you're not in the same place? No, not at all. But my mind naturally goes there. You know, I think that's that's a thing that our industry cultivates is like, oh no, it's got to be about like, uh, you know, decorating your desk or like we we have a beer fridge. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, and and yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, ultimately, right. it's it's a it's a feeling of connectedness with and and transparency. You know, uh, understanding the work and feeling comfortable in it with the people. You know, but besides just the doing of the work. Uh, you know, having a peripheral understanding. At least that's what it is for me. I, I don't know. Yeah, th- thanks for that reminder because I think one of the things that, like, it, it's kind of making me think about this is, like, when I think about the culture of a super-friendly project, what I, one thing that I do ask everyone to do on a project is to figure out how they can help serve everybody else on the team. So, so that's, like, I assign the producer on the project that job, but I encourage everybody else to think about that too. So the producer's job on, on a project, at least one of them, is every morning to go around to everybody on the team and say, what can I do for you today? Like, what, what is it that you need help with? What, what can I unblock for you? Like, what are you struggling with today? And, and what can I get out of your way? And I think that's probably the, the biggest driver of a culture, of culture on a super friendly project is, like, how can, how can we all serve each other? Like, how can I, as a designer, if I'm designing on a project, how can I serve the developer better? Maybe it's making better comps. Maybe it's getting on the phone. Maybe it's, you know, leaving them alone. Like, how can I actually serve that? So, so I think if, if there was one thing that I could say to sum up that, or at least aspirationally, at least, I don't know if this is the reality, but, but I would say it's like how can we all serve each other and make each other better in mm-hmm. in the work that we do? and i think if everybody comes a- away with that like yeah like i felt like i was really collaborating with everyone and i felt like like i got better because of everybody else i feel like that's a big win for for me yeah yeah and just the roles of like trust and sharing and openness yes. and vulnerability um which is a funny thing to talk about when you're talking about you know big projects uh like you work on like lullabot works on uh often 
Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how, do, how does an engagement tend to work? Uh, what do you, do you, uh, start a project by going on site with a client? I mean, I, I, given that probably everything is works differently from one another, I mean, what is sort of a <laughs> sure. typical engagement look like? And especially, uh, I'm, I'm curious because there's a, a design component <laughs> to you yeah. and to the kinds of projects that you're working on. Uh, um, and, and, you know, it's not just development. It's not just ones and zeros and, and, and code. This is, right. you know, a lot of kind of touchy feely UX, UI, uh, design kinds of stuff, which is harder to collaborate online for. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely tough. Um, so yeah, like you said, like every project is a little bit different, but certainly there are common themes that exist throughout. Um, so like how, how far back should I start? Like sales process? <laughs> start wherever you want. Cause you also have All an right. interesting view, uh, on, on the sales process. So maybe we can yeah. touch, touch on that too. Sure. And I, I actually love talking about that stuff too. So I'm going to take this opportunity to do that. <laughs> Go for um, it. <laughs> so my, like, like I mentioned before, my background is, is as a designer. Um, and one of the things that I learned as a designer working at, at agencies is sometimes you'd solve, you don't solve the design problem when you're designing. Like you solve it way earlier. So there are times where I'm like, I'm designing the wrong thing and I know I'm designing the wrong thing. And I go, oh, let me, let me ask the client or tell the client that we're designing the wrong thing. And inevitably, somebody who's been involved earlier in the process, that could be business development or it could be strategy or you know whoever, has said like, oh, no, no, we can't go back on that because it's in the contract or because we agreed to this earlier on. And I'm like, well, that sucks because my hands are tied. So what I've tried to do throughout my whole career is like just be involved earlier, like one step earlier. Okay, well, as a designer, let me be involved in the UX part, right? Like if you think about the waterfall chain, let me, let me be one step earlier. Let me be involved in the UX part or in the IA part so that I can influence the design. Oh, that's not early enough? Okay, let me be involved in the strategy part. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's not early enough? Okay, let me be involved in the sales part, you know? <laughs> just keep going all the way up the chain um, because I think that's the place where you can influence a lot. So for, so on the sales part, one of the things I try to do is I'm very, very picky about the clients that we work with. Um, I love getting qualified clients. Who, who doesn't? Um, and, and it's tough to get just kind of cold calls like, hey, we want to rebuild Facebook. We got a $2,500 budget. <laughs> you know, what can you do for us? <laughs> like that's not <laughs> like that. Even to convert that into a good project takes a lot of time, and the and the the odds are low. So I love getting qualified projects. When I do get qualified projects, which Super Friendly does, I would say ninety percent of the stuff that we did, uh, stuff that we do, comes from word of mouth. It's you know somebody who works at a company that saw one of us at a conference, you know, or somebody that works at an organization that used to work with me, you know, at an agency somewhere. So a lot of that stuff comes through through word of mouth, um, and so. I like to, to set up the project in a way that we could do really great work, right? And if I could do that in the sales process, that gives us a ton of liberty. So part of that comes down to understanding what the client really wants. And I spent a long time doing that. A lot, I know a lot of agencies that their sales process is like a couple of days, right? Somebody, in, somebody says, you know, we have this amount of budget. We want to do some work. They're like, cool, let's ramp it up. We'll start the clock and we'll figure it out. You know, we'll bill you hourly and we'll figure it out the whole time. Okay. Um, my process is my sales process is much the opposite of that. Where sometimes I'll qualify a client for two months, three months, six months, you know, and that's that's really long. 
And uh, just so that I understand what the project is. And if I understand what the project is and if the client understands what the project is, because sometimes they don't, right? I spend a lot of the sales process saying like, is this the project you want us to do? Oh, <laughs> no. Is, okay, how about this one? Is this the one that you want us to do? Or I think this is a better project to do. What do you think of that? Right? And, and like kind of coming to agreement on like what we're going to do in that sales process and then writing up an agreement and a price that reflects all that stuff. Right. And if we can get that then the rest of the project is going to be cake, right? Because they've agreed to what, you know, like I'm a big proponent of value pricing. And part of that comes to like from like understanding what is valuable to them. And if I'm like, oh, this is what's valuable to you for you to not be able to work weekends for the next year. Cool. Well, that's going to be half a million bucks for us to do something that makes you not work weekends. And if they're like, we, that would be great. Like that would be worth it for us. I'm like, excellent. We will do everything we can to get you to not work weekends. And that's the project that we're going to do. And so whether deliverables change or process changes or order changes or or methodology changes. That's all. That, all that stuff is good in the middle of a project. It'll it allows us the flexibility to change that stuff, um, as long as we're serving that ultimate goal. And so, so I try to write agreements in that way. I try to set up projects and qualify clients in that way. Um, and uh, and that's kind of how a, a project generally starts. Then the first thing we do is so kind of to get more directly back to the question that you asked. The first thing we do is we all get together in in the same room. And we just try to ratify a couple things. Sorry, I, I skipped a piece, which is before we get together in the same room, right? So the client signs a contract, they send a deposit, we get to work. And what get to work usually means is we spend time talking to as many people as we can individually. So if it's an app that we're building or we're redesigning, let's say, you know, we'll talk to people who use the app, we'll talk to people who made the app, we'll talk to people who they want to use the app, and we'll try to understand like what's the stuff that's missing, what's the stuff that's common, what's the stuff that's obvious. And then one of the first steps is after a couple of weeks of doing that, um, we will get together in a room with the client for you know two days at minimum, a week maybe at the, at the max, and we'll just say back to them, like, here's the stuff that we heard. Like, uh, and we heard these 30 things. Now let's put those in order of priority, and let's tackle the first three in the, over these next six weeks. Um, and, and just get them to ratify, like, is this, like, is this, did we hear the right stuff? Is this really the right stuff that we should be working on? So like at every stage of, of a project, I'm generally checking in with the client or my producer's generally checking in with the client, like, are we still doing the right project? Are we still doing the right project? Because that's the stuff that I've seen derail projects where you just, you're, you're doing the project that you agreed to in the contract, even though it's the wrong project. And so I like to have the flexibility to, to keep, to continue assessing that, like, hey, just check in, you know, we're, we're still on the right track, right? We're still on the right track. We are, okay, cool, we'll keep going. And, and at every stage, every milestone or every presentation, that's sort of the underlying theme is like, like we're doing the right thing, right? Are we doing the right thing? I think we're doing the right thing, but I want you to, to, to verify that. Um, and, and I find that that leads to good projects is when you're sort of like always checking in about that stuff. And then, so I think that's the part that's common. And then all the rest of it, I think is very, very different, right? Because as long as we know what we're supposed to be shooting for, we can do that in a bunch of different ways, right? We could start development first, or we could design some stuff first, or we could do more interviews, or we could prototype, or we could do design sprints. Like all, all the methodologies are all, there's so many of them that you can plug and play whichever one you want and see if that one's the right thing. So I think all of that stuff is flexible. The stuff up front, I think, is a thing that's probably common from project to project. Yeah. Wow. I think that Sorry, um, that's a lot. <laughs> no, no, I'm 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 uh figuring out where to start here. The uh probably for some people listening, uh as I've seen your your talk on uh value pricing and uh um uh that way of doing sales and I think for a lot of companies who have a more 
conventional, we'll just call it a conventional sale, you sure. know, sort of outbound kind of commission based sort of sales style. Uh, it, it can seem a little bit weird, but I, I think it's, it's just wonderfully empathetic and it, and it seems to take a lot of the lessons, uh, that, uh, designers have learned over the past, yeah. uh, you know, 20 years, things like um, user testing and user experience, uh, the ways of thinking about that, and kind of moving them up into the sales process. So it's, you know, it's sort of like, in the same way that when the project starts, you ask the users, what do you need? And ask the production team, how does it work? You know, what's going to right. be the best thing? And, you know, it seems really simple uh, in in retrospect, but, but when, you know, UX kind of came on the scene, it was like, this like, hey, has anybody thought to ask the users? You know? <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> because in print, you couldn't, you know? And, and I mean, you could maybe sort yep. of look at, like, you know, sales of magazines and books and kind of do some testing based on what happened, but nobody was going, you know, I mean, there was well anyway but uh but i like this you know moving it up earlier to say to, to have empathy and understand that even though people have let's just say an rfp out there it doesn't necessarily mean they really know what they want uh and exactly. um and more importantly that you are as a company are going to really understand what they want and that if you can really build that into the process um it can be kind of a magical experience uh, on both sides um to just have that yeah. you know we talked about sort of building trust and understanding in the team you know if you can extend that out to the clients that's that's amazing um yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the things that I value on projects is for the client to be part of the product team, right? So like like if we're using Trello and if we're doing Kanban in Trello, we teach the client Kanban and they're in Trello. If we're doing stuff every day, they're doing stuff every day too. So super friendly projects come with a lot of homework for the client because ultimately they're going to live with this stuff. And, and maybe that's just the type of clients that, that we generally work with. But like at some point we're going to be gone, but they have to continue the work. Right. Um, we don't work with a lot of clients. It's sort of like, you know, we'll build a thing and then we'll launch it and then it can sit there for a while without maintenance. Most of the stuff that we do is in, you know, publishing or media and so like the show must go on whether or not we're we're the vendor and so part of the part of what has to i think part of what why i think we have to be good service providers is like they got to learn how to use this stuff too and how to do this stuff too so a lot of the the format for a project is all right how about you you come along with us and watch us kind of do this stuff for a while then you try it on while we're around and then you take over and and we watch and then we disappear and you don't even notice right and because you because you've got it down and i think that's like that's part of the value proposition that i try to sell for super friendly yeah um, so we talked a, a earlier a little bit about sort of like the business setup and the difficulty uh, if, you know, people are doing this work on weekends and, and freelancing and sort of jumping from thing to thing that they don't have that stability. And it's sort of harder, yeah. perhaps harder for you to find people uh, if, if they, you know, are um, feeling that need for... I don't know, constancy, stability, health insurance, you know, things yeah, right, like that. Right. Uh, um, uh, and, and it seems like this, this need uh, has dovetailed into what's become super booked. Uh, am I mm, correct? Yes. Co correct there. You want to talk about that Absolutely. a little bit? 
Yeah, so Superbooked is a new thing that I'm I'm working on. And it's weird to say new thing because I've been working on it for the last three years, but like <laughs> <laughs> only the last couple of months is we, we've been like talking about it publicly. And it's right now it's like just just starting in private beta, so super early. Um, but it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. And I think there's there is um, like in this in this kind of gig economy, freelance economy, uh, that's something that people are always looking for help. Um, whether that's a client looking for help or it's an agency that wants to bring on a freelancer for a thing that they don't have on staff. Like there's this idea of like, I need something right now and I don't know where to get it. And, uh, and at least from my experience and fr- from a lot of the research that we did uh, leading up to Superbooked, uh, a lot of people have this experience too, is that sometimes like – I would say oftentimes work comes from people that you trust, right? Good work comes from people that you trust. And and I think really that gets back to the the kind of qualified thing, right? If it's somebody you trust sending you a, a piece of work or a person that you might work with, like there's some trust there that's built in. Whereas in in an unqualified lead, you you have to build that trust. Like you have to actually generate it from scratch, which is a significant effort. Yes. So Superbooked is really a, a thing that helps connect people. Um, and, and there's kind of two behaviors that it caters to. One is, you know, you're an agency or maybe you're, maybe you're a lone freelancer, you're a designer and you're like, well, I need a developer for a project. Like who could that developer be? So it helps you kind of like, like, um, collect all of the people that you're like, okay, I would really like to work with this person. Let me put them in a place where they're always going to be top of mind for me. Cause one of the things that I find is sometimes like, sometimes I know the person that I want to work with. I just don't remember them. Right. I'm just, I'm, mm-hmm. they don't come to mind. So mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't, like, I don't want to ever. And, and I, I pitch this way to clients for super friendly, you know, when they're like, well, how do you find like a PHP developer? I'm like, well, what I will never do is outsource, right? Like say like, Oh, we're just going to send this to a shop overseas or whatever. And the other thing I won't do is Google like PHP developer, right? Like if I don't know that person, <laughs> if I don't trust them, right. then I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to do good work. So, so super this is about the best that. skills, not the best SEO. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly. Right. I don't want to find somebody and then at the time where we're putting together a project, get to try and and know them and understand them and see if they're going to be a good fit. Like doing that stuff under duress is not a good idea. So, so, so Superbook kind of helps that. And then the other behavior that it kind of caters to is, you know, and we see this on Twitter all the time. I see this on Facebook. I get emails as I'm sure that a lot of people listening do when somebody needs work, they just like send up the the beacon, right? They like yeah. send out the bat signal. They like tweet like, "Hey, looking for work in the next couple of months. Like, if anybody's got anything, let me know." Um, or they send, you know, they send an email to all of their friends that they would love to work with. Like, "Hey, I got some availability coming up. You know, let me know if you could use me on anything." So, Superbook also helps that, right? In in being able to surface those opportunities and being able to kind of match those things. Where you know, if somebody's like, "Hey, I'm a designer. I got two weeks of availability coming up." Well, if I <laughs> coincidentally, if I have a project in coming up in two weeks and I need a designer, well, that's a good matchmaking thing that needs to happen there. And you know what? Like computers are really good at matchmaking. So <laughs> why not make the computer do that rather and, than than make the human do that? And to create an environment for that. I mean, if you're using Facebook for that, you know, you get things like your high school friends or your mom calls you and says like, I, are are you okay for work? You know, I see you posting all the time that you're looking for work. What's happening? You know, and it's like, ah, (laughs) you're misunderstanding what's going on here. Uh, Exactly. Then you get the offers to like, well, you could mow my lawn. I could send you some money for that. (laughs) Uh, All right. I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um yeah, that's that's great. Uh and and so um it sort of 
how how would you describe kind of uh, the site still coming together? Uh, I'm guessing you have more of a vision for it than actually even what's happening on the site yet. Um, sort of a social network. For, uh, social network for work is LinkedIn. Uh, how, right. Like, wh- how would you define you know what how, the interaction between people on the site? Yeah, so I think I think that there is, and this is this is interesting. Like, I've I've started a couple of businesses. Some flopped. Some are still going. Some are just like you know hanging on. Some are flourishing. And the thing that I've noticed, and especially talking to other like CEOs of companies, is that they often have a vision that's four steps ahead, right? And they, they can articulate that really well. But articulating the next step is super difficult, right? Because it it's contingent on something. So I'll, that's kind of my my disclaimer here. Like I can, I can tell you what Superbooked will be in a year if all things go well. Right? right? Like what's my vision for this thing? The tough part one is you're right. It is kind of a social network because you have to build that network. Like this is all this like the super friendly model for super friendly Superbooked. It's all built on having a strong network. So I think step one of this is like. Is you discovering your network? Like, what are the who are the people that you want to be connected to that are going to feed you? Like, here's a great design project. Not, well, yeah, you could mow my lawn and I could give you a couple hundred bucks to do that or what, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. So, building that network of people that you know that you trust to give you good work and that, and people that trust you back to do good work for them. Right. So, I think that's the thing that LinkedIn is missing. So, I mm-hmm. think LinkedIn is like has a great opportunity for being the social network for work, but it's missing that because really it's just kind of a resume, like a resume holder right now. It's like you know. You put your resume up there. You know you can say like I got a new job, and people can congratulate you. Hit a congratulate button well, or whatever. It, but it, and it's steeped in that old model. It's not st- exactly steeped. LinkedIn is not designed for the gig economy. Uh, in fact, exactly. it, as as an example of that, uh, I've had a really hard time posting jobs on LinkedIn because uh, I think at least up until recently, uh, you had to have a location. You couldn't hire people just sort of around you had to have a canonical location and uh yeah where where you are and where the talent is isn't always necessarily the the same thing exactly and i think more and more people are discovering that right they're like there's this you know we're in michigan and there's this really great developer in you know in in dc are we really going to ask that person to move across the country and you know and and (laughs) do that like why like the way that that technology works now, it's completely feasible and sometimes actually more productive to have people, you know, in wherever they want to live and do like it gives them a lot of freedom. I'm preaching to the choir here, and like, but but I think like that's like that like social networks aren't built for that. Or at least LinkedIn is not built for that idea. Like the, it's such an arbitrary requirement to have a location. Like that that doesn't need to be a thing anymore. And where it maybe used to be a thing, that's like it hasn't adapted to the world that we live in now. So ideally, I can uh, Superbook can kind of help fill that gap. Um, and uh, and so I'm hoping that it does. Yeah, that's great. Um, let's talk about interns. Um, yes. Which it, it, I feel like we're kind of jerking the conversation over there, but I really want to talk to you about this because um, one of the things uh, that I've had a hard time with uh, running a distributed company is figuring out how to uh do uh intern not just interns but also sort of hiring intern like people uh you know kind mm-hmm. of ramping them up uh and and uh and you've had some experience with that and i i would love to talk to you about that totally yeah so 
Um, I run an apprenticeship as part of Super Friendly. It's called Super Friendly Academy. Um, and generally, the people that are apprentices are people that start from zero skills in design or tech or project management or whatever. So they're people that came from like, you know, selling cell phones or being a substitute teacher sure, or, yeah. um, you know, like like a lot of them are career switchers. A lot of them are like non-college goers. Like, ah, I don't really feel like college was for me, but I'm not sure, you know? And so it's, it's mostly that it's, it's, it hasn't been, you know, I'm a junior designer and I want to level up to being a senior designer. So I'll, I'll intern or apprentice somewhere. So a lot of it is, is, is like based on how do you take someone that doesn't have any skills in this industry mm -hmm. and give them the skills to get an entry level position somewhere else. And because super friendly doesn't have a, a you know, there are no full timers except for me after nine months, what I encourage everybody to do is go out and apply elsewhere, like go and get some other experience somewhere else like that's one of the coolest things about our industry compared to say like you know my parents or, or something like that, is that you know our parents and grandparents they had jobs for 50 years right. you know like the same job right yeah. and then you get your pension um in our industry like the average is i don't know what people hop around every two years two and a half years something like that and like even more frequently in areas like new york and san francisco so i think that's actually a great thing about our industry is that we get like a wide range of experience by working you know at a small shop and then a large shop or at a agency and then at a product shop or like doing we can get all these different kinds of experience so i feel like nine months at super friendly you get to see how we run and and, and you get to see like all right this is this stuff is cool this stuff i don't really like and then go somewhere else and go you know go get some different experience somewhere else and bring bring that along with you so that you become more and more valuable as you collect all these experiences. And so part of the apprenticeship is is that. Now, I think one of the reasons that the apprenticeship is an exception to the sort of distributed super friend model is that I haven't figured out how to do a a distributed learning uh, curriculum, I guess. And the reason for that is because a lot of the super friendly apprenticeship is based on kind of this passive observation as learning, right? So like so me sitting at my desk and somebody sitting right behind me, they don't have to interrupt me to learn from me and I don't have to interrupt them to learn from them, right? I could just turn around and see yeah. what they're working on. And and so what I find is sometimes, I, I don't know if my apprentices even know this, like one, sometimes I'll just turn around and like watch them for a couple of minutes. You know, it's like, oh, cool, that's how they're doing stuff. And, and I expect that they do the same thing to me without me even knowing. Um, to do a distributed apprenticeship or a remote apprenticeship, I think that's tough because you have to always be active, right? There's no, there's no such thing, or at least not that I can think of, as like ways that you could passively observe something and then learn from that. And I yeah. think you know, active, active learning is definitely part of it, well, but I think there's, there's a piece missing in that passiveness. Immersion thing, uh, you know, when yes. you talk about sort of immersion learning, it's it's the nonverbal peripheral kind of what it, what does it smell like? What it, what does yes. what's the rhythm? of this place what you know I think I, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before but like uh, um, one of the first office jobs I had was working at O'Reilly uh, now O'Reilly Media um, in, mm -hmm. in Cambridge and uh, I just remember learning like uh, Photoshop key commands and and things like that from other people yes. you know you, you sort of look over their shoulder and you're like what are you doing i didn't even know it could do that that's amazing that saves so much time you know like there's that kind of stuff that you know even in a curriculum it might get passed over uh or or it's in a curriculum it's required to be captured uh whereas you know the the human experience is is uh about capturing this this you know the the wide variety of 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 uh stimulus and and sensory input and then and then filtering that into oh that's a key command <laughs> you, know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know what's important here uh uh yeah 
Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, 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 I do, I think you're on the right track. It, it is a little bit cynical uh, on the, you know, remote work podcast to be saying, right. yeah, <laughs> thumbs up, man. You know, bring your interns into the office. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, like, I think a lot of remote culture and, and I, I would say just in general in our industry, we have a high focus on productivity. Um, which, and I think for good reason, you know, I'm certainly not, not denouncing that. Um, but, but the idea of teaching someone is actually at some point antithetical to productivity, right? It's actually unproductive, um, unproductive directly, but it's an investment. And mm-hmm. the way that I think about investments is that investments are short-term losses to get to long-term gains. Right. And so in order, and so you can do remote work without, or distributed work without, short-term loss, right? You can just, you can dive right into long-term gain, but it's not an investment, right? It's just, it's like, it's just a way, a thing that you can do. But if you really want to get that long, longer term gain, you got to incur a little bit of loss. And so some, so for me, what that means is, all right, like I'll devote an hour uh, to not being productive and teaching, not being productive for, for myself mm-hmm. and teaching somebody something. And, and what that will turn into is maybe six months from now that they will actually save me four hours, right? Because I've spent that hour six months before teaching them something. Sure. So like, I feel like that, that trade-off works out, but it's just not a direct one. And, and I think there are a lot of agencies and a lot of shops whose culture is antithetical to that because what they look at is they look at billability, right? right. So like if I spent half my week, um, you know, if I spent half my week teaching or, or whatever, right, I'm 50% billable. I would get fired. <laughs> you know, I would get fired at most agencies because I don't meet their whatever, 70% or 80% billability structure. Um, but it doesn't, that, that structure doesn't reflect investment. And so I think there's, there's like, I think that I haven't figured out how to make remote uh, or distributed apprenticeship and investment. Um, I have figured out how to do it, you know, in person. So I figured that's that's the way to start. And then certainly open to figuring out ways to do that distributed because I think it allows it to scale a lot quicker and a lot more productively than than not. Well, and it's sort of a karmic investment as well. Uh, just yeah. doing doing good. Uh, um, you know those those companies uh, that that are focused so much on the on the billing. You know, we've gotten so good at spreadsheets over the past 30 years, you know, <laughs> that, that, you know, we've got it all figured out t- to a point that it doesn't really make sense uh, in a, in a sort of, um, <laughs> in a kind of cosmic way, you know, in kind of a, in, in a soul based kind of way. It's like, yeah, okay, we're, we're making the money, but are we, you know, furthering humanity here. Uh, are we, are we allowing people to, to, um, move up and, and, uh, and, and ultimately, you know, I, I like this idea of the, the investment thing, cause it does start to put it on a spreadsheet a little bit, but, but I don't even know right. that it's that simple. Um, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's hard, harder to track on like in like an Excel doc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so talk to me about what it, what it looks like to be an intern uh, at, at Super Friendly Academy. Like, how how do people how do you find people? What how you know what what's what's that look like? Yeah, sure. And so, so one thing, and and I think that you'll appreciate this is like I don't say intern, I say apprentice because I think okay. there's a very uh, and, and the reason I say I think you'd appreciate this is I remember the way that I understood the difference between remote work and distributed work was actually from you when we were at the the owner summit conference. Uh, there was this one breakout <laughs> where people were like using the terms interchangeably, and you were like, "Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. 
there's a difference between remote work and, and distributed work. Here is what remote means. It comes from the Latin word remover, which means rem- like I, you broke it down etymologically. And I was like, yes, a word guy. I love this. Thanks. <laughs> so, yeah. so for me, I think, I think <laughs> words are, are like super important. And I think there's baggage that comes with the word intern that may, that, and, and there's different baggage yeah, that comes sure. with apprentice, but intern has this connotation of like, you're going to go get coffee. You're going to staple my papers. You're going to, you know, like just do like really menial work until I think that you're ready to do, um, you know, to, to do like meaningful work. Uh, and that's like, sometimes that's accurate and, and sometimes it's not, but it doesn't say like, I'm invested in teaching you in the long run. And I think apprenticeship does a little bit. Certainly you're going to be doing mean, you know, like really basic stuff as an apprentice, but it's all with a goal in mind, right? It's a goal that like you are learning under someone and not just the trade, not just the craft, but also like just how to be a professional. And I think that the history of apprenticeship kind of like hints at that too. Like if you think about the way that blacksmiths, you know, used to work in medieval times, it's like you'd get a kid who's seven years old, their parents would send them to, to live with you you know, for the next yeah. 10 years yeah. and you would learn how to be a blacksmith, you know, but you'd also learn how to like cook and clean your room and like how to, how to charge a customer that came in and how to assess problems. Like you'd learn the profession of blacksmithing, not just like how to nail horseshoes onto a horse. And so I think that, like, there's something about that, that model that, that translates. Um, you, you learn all the stuff around the business too, and around the craft, not just the craft itself. So, so, um, it's a nine-month apprenticeship. I think I mentioned that. The first three months are really about, well, even before that, how do I look for people? This one's tough because if you think about how you hire a designer, the thing that you do is you look at a portfolio. But for someone who doesn't have any experience doing this stuff, right, they have experience doing other stuff, they don't have a portfolio. They don't have, like, you can't say, like, well, show me your work. Um, so what I look for there is I look for a sort of motivation. You know, I look for, like, like why, why do they need this? Why do they want this? And some people have, like, great motivation. Some people have small motivation and some people are just bored. Like, ah, I don't know. I thought I would try this out. And that doesn't show, that doesn't show me that there's a lot of investment there. Mm-hmm. I've also found that there's, there's actually a, a, a too much amount of, of motivation that actually is dangerous too. So <laughs> I, I've had one, you know, and, and like, if you're too motivated, like if you have too much riding on this, there's actually going to be a lot of pressure. And that actually causes people to, to get anxiety around this stuff, you know, it's like, and, and they can't finish because they're so anxious about having to make this work. Mm-hmm. So I actually find that there's a sweet spot there of, you know, like not too motivated, but certainly motivated enough that it's going to get you through nine months of some, some of those times are going to be really tough. So the, the curriculum is basically that the first three months are um, just basic training, right? Like the first day we talk about like how the internet works. Like how does data from over there across the world travel through a series of pipes buried underneath the ocean, you know, and, and get to my box that connects to the internet? Like what, is, what does that mean? Like what is, what's HTTP? What does that have to do with anything? And like what, how does FTP work? Like all, so we go over, that's like the first day. Like here's how packets of information travel from here to there. Um, and, and then every day from there we sort of do a couple of lectures. Like so some days I'll teach HTML. Some days I'll teach CSS. Some days I'll teach tools like Photoshop. You know, like you know, we'll just go through the toolbar. Here's what this tool is. Here's what this tool is. This one's called the Move tool. The shortcut key is V. This one's called the Marquee tool. The shortcut key is M. Like we'll go through from very, very basic. You know, for for a developer apprentice, it's like here's how you write your first line of HTML. This is an angle bracket. This thing is called a tag. This thing is called an attribute. You know, and we just go like really basic. And the first three months are just building up those basic skills and like learning how to fight against the tools, right? Like installing a code editor 
editor and being like, well, this auto-completed in a way that I don't want it to. How do I turn that off? Or like, you know, going in Photoshop and being like, I don't understand how to make this into a clipping mask or what that layer adjust- adjustment layer actually did. Um, and so after those three months, I find that it's like you fight the tools less, like you're able to kind of like be fluent, be more fluent in them. And then the next three months are really just about work experience. So I'll put people on projects. Up to this point, I haven't paid them generally because I believe that you pay people based on value. And at that point, they're not actually providing any value. Actually, I'm the one providing value. So essentially, they should pay me for this, but I'm, I'm happy to call it even. Um, and so, so when they start providing value, I start to provide you know, cash as, a, as a, a, a trade for that. So we'll start with really small projects like you're in charge of the footer and, and we'll work on stuff around the business, around the profession of that. So I'll, I'll ask them, like, like I ask any of my contractors, price the footer for me. How much would you charge me for this footer? And sometimes they'll get it wrong. Most times they'll get it wrong, right? They'll say like, oh, like, like $30. And I'm like, all right, well, that's too low. And here's why it's too low. Like, we'll go over that. Like, here's, here's why I, I think that that's too low. And then, you know, they'll come back and say like, well, okay, $6,000. <laughs> like, well, that's too high, right? And here's why it's too high. And, and we talk about that stuff. And, and that's the thing that like, if you are working at a job, you might get fired for that type of failure. Um, right. But here, like I think, like I'm not going to fire anybody, right? Because, uh, and so, like this is that's the point of this. And so we talk about that stuff. Some apprentices go on to freelance afterwards. Some some go on to you know work work full time at places. But like knowing how, like how valuable a thing is helps you do things like negotiate your salary or negotiate rates with a with a prospective client. So we go over that kind of stuff. And as they gain more skill, I give them bigger and bigger projects, which pay more and more. Um, so at the end of most people's apprenticeships, the people who, who finish, at the end of it, they're basically doing whole sites on their own. I'm not doing anything, right? They're like the end of an apprenticeship, that end that six month, seven month, eight month mark. I have apprentices that are coming to me saying, like, all right, here's how I want to do this project. Uh, I'm gonna I scoped it this way. It's gonna take about six weeks. The first week I'm gonna do this, the second week I'm probably gonna do this. The third week I'm gonna look at this, but I'll probably send it to the client at this point. And all I say at the end of that is like, yeah, okay, great. Like sounds good. You know, I, I don't have to give any instruction at that point. And when I'm at that point with an apprentice, that's worth any amount of money, right? So like if I'm making whatever, $20,000 on a project, I'm happy to give them all that $20,000 because I don't have to do any work on it. If I have to do, like the more work I have to do, the more money I'm going to keep. The more work you do for me, the more work you take away from me, the more money I'm going to give to you. So I try, try to kind of build that up. And then the last three months of the apprenticeship are really focused on Taking all that work that you've done over the last six months, compiling it into a portfolio, writing a resume, writing cover letters. We do interview prep. We identify dream companies that apprentices might want to work with and what kind of portfolio pieces would actually go into that um, and, and what would be attractive to the companies that they want to work for. Um, we do, uh, you know, uh, we do, I help them with salary negotiations, you know, once they, once they get to that point and then they go out and interview and ideally at the end of it, you know, they've got a full-time job somewhere else. Wow. It sounds like it's been a very rewarding experience. I, I hope so. I mean, it has been for me. I, 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 I mean, for, for you. Too. I mean, for you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. For me. Yeah. That's great. Um, cool. Well, I think we're at a point where we could, uh, we could wrap this up. Have we, have we covered everything cool. that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this stuff for hours. So this is, this is great. <laughs> I, I love talking, <laughs> talking to people about this. Well, if people if if people uh, listening want to ask more questions to Dan, you can find him on Twitter at uh, Daniel Mall. Uh, where are other places that that people should find you, Dan? 
Yeah, that's probably the best place. I keep uh, direct messages open, so anybody that wants to direct message me can. Um, if you want to email, if you prefer that, dan at danielmall.com. Um, if you want to check out Super Friendly, it's superfriend.ly, like you mentioned earlier. And uh, if you want to check out the apprenticeship stuff, superfriend.ly slash academy. Um, I think that kind of covers it. And Superbooked is superbooked.com. And you oh, can that's right. Thank sign you. up there to be notified when uh, when things continue happening. Um that's great. Well, thanks a lot, Dan. Yeah, thank you for this. I love the opportunity to talk about this stuff, so I appreciate it. All right, take care. You too.